This is Cedar Hills Community Church in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, a place to be loved, a place to belong, and a place to serve. We are going through the Songs of Ascent, which are 15 psalms, and uh, we're up to number eight today. So we're up to Psalm 127. So I'd like to invite you, if you've got your Bible, to open that up or open up your phone or any other device that you're reading Scripture with to Psalm 127. Before we read this together, I want to offer you a prayer, and here's my prayer for you today. The Lord be with you. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from Him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. This is God's Word and it's true and we can rely on it. We do tend to uh, pay attention to winners and losers in our world today. And uh, I'd like you to uh, chat with your neighbor or else you can just call out to me individual uh, people that you would consider to be winners. Individuals you would consider to be a winner. Go ahead, chat with your neighbor or if you want to yell out a name at me, you can do that. People who are winners. Tim Tebow. What was that one? Football players, okay. Any other ideas? Billy Graham. Billy Graham. Good one. Okay, what, what are the qualities that you think uh, mark a winner? So you've thought of a person. What are, what are the kind of qualities that you're admiring in that person? Would just share those with each other, or if you want to yell them out, yell them out. Uh, qualities of a winner. Integrity, character, success, good sportsmanship, happy, good. Okay, we're thinking about winners and losers today, and it seems like in our culture we do pay a lot of attention to winners and losers, and we particularly like winners. I don't know if any of you ever watch shows like The Masked Singer or Survivor or um, what's The Bachelor, Bachelorette, is that the one that's on right now? There may be a lot of reasons for us to watch these reality shows, but one of the main things that drives us is we keep watching because we want to see who wins, right? We want to see who's the last one standing or who's the best voice or who's the top chef. We, we, we like these competitions. Some people actually think of all of life like a competition, like life is a race. We're all running this race and we're hoping to get to the end and in the end to be successful so that we'll be considered winners, um, not losers. The challenge that I've had as I've been thinking about this concept this week is that the, the winning the race of life is uh, it's a challenge to sometimes figure out what measure you're using to determine success. What is the quality that you're looking at to really determine if someone is a winner? 
And that challenge is complicated further because we recognize that we're actually running probably multiple races throughout life. And so there's a family race or career race, a community race, a spirituality race. There's lots of different things that we're trying to do. And we run these races over different terrain and there's different sorts of trophies at the end. The race for material wealth or fame, that gets a lot of attention, of course. We know if you win the, the race to wealth, then you're the wealthiest. If you win the race to fame, you're the most famous. But there's also other races where we are maybe racing to see if we have a good reputation or the model family or we're racing for comfort or security or, or beauty or uh, recognition. I was thinking about this a lot yesterday because I was at a memorial service that was commemorating the lives of nine different people who have passed away in the, in the last year. And after they read a short excerpt from each obituary, then they asked the crowd there to say something about these people. And the kinds of things they mentioned, I thought, well, they're, they're talking about what was successful about these people. Here's the kinds of things they mentioned. They talked about someone showing great kindness they talked about one woman who had a wonderful smile. Every time she walked into the room, she lit up the room with her smile. It was contagious. They, she talk, they talked about someone else who was a, a jokester. They had good humor. They made everyone laugh. Someone else, uh, deep love and commitment to their family, commitment to her, his spouse. Um, someone else who really loved their grandkids. These were measures of success, right? They, they won in the race to uh, have a good family. So I'm thinking now that because it can be difficult to determine if we're winners or losers, we all want to be winners, I was thinking about this while reading Psalm 127 this week, and it seemed to me that one, at least one thing the psalmist was doing was he was giving us some clues about what it means to win. And that uh, I thought it might be helpful for us to look at this as a guide to winning this morning. So we'll do that here for the next few minutes. The first thing that I noticed was that he was talking about winning at work. What would success at work look like? And I got this from the opening paragraph. Uh, a Song of Ascents of Solomon, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guard stands watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. Now Solomon wrote Psalm 127, we know that because his name's at the beginning, but if you had just read the words, you might have gotten a clue that this is Solomon because the theme of Psalm 127 is almost identical to one of his famous books, the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon is writing about what does it mean to win in life. He writes 12 chapters about that, winning in life and what that looks like. He actually runs this little experiment about, well, does pleasure give me success? Does uh, fine wine give me success? Does wealth give me success? Does hard work give me? He goes through this whole list of things throughout his book. And one of the most common words in the book of Ecclesiastes is also in this psalm. It's the word vanity. In fact, in the introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes, the second verse, Solomon writes this, vanity of vanities, says the teacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There's actually in the original only eight words in that verse and five of the eight words are vanity, which you could also translate as meaningless or worthless. 
So here's what Solomon is saying in his famous book about the meaning of life. He says, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. And then he goes on for 12 chapters to describe just why life is so meaningless. But hidden in here is uh, some gems about what it really means to win in this life. And um, he's actually looking at a particular kind of work and it's particularly meaningless. It's the kind of work that we do when we are constantly toiling, constantly striving, a kind of anxious striving to say, I've got to do this or else I'll fail. If I don't get this work done, I'll lose. That's the kind of work that he's really talking about. And he says that chasing after this kind of work is like chasing the wind. You never do find satisfaction. It actually is vanity, 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 meaningless, worthless work. Psalm 127 actually starts exactly the same way. A little different words, but here's the message. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, the, builder, the builder's work is meaningless. It's worthless. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman's work of watching out is worthless. It's meaningless. Clearly, Solomon is talking about this kind of anxious toil, which leads to kind of a self-indulgent, uh, selfish, compulsive, workaholic. These are the kinds of things that work drives us to. And this kind of work actually wears us out because of its drudgery. We just have to keep our nose to the grindstone in order to keep providing, and we never get there. This is the kind of work that actually fails to recognize what God is doing. It puts all the pressure on us that if we're not getting it done, it's not going to happen. And this work is vanity. It's meaningless. In vain you rise early and stay up late toiling to get food to eat. Thinking that if I don't toil, if I don't keep plodding away, I'm going to go hungry. All the pressure's on us. Now, when Solomon wrote these words in Psalm 127, he was actually writing words about a particular city that needed watching and a particular house that was being built. The city that he recognizes needing a watchman was Jerusalem, and the house that he was building was the Lord's house. He was building the temple. So he's saying this, even though this is God's city, Jerusalem, the city of peace, you know, the city of Shalom, this is God's special place where God dwells. And even though this temple is God's special place where we meet God, the presence of God is real in this place, we can do all the hard work and all the effort we want. And if God is not there doing the work, our work is meaningless. And that got me thinking about all the things we do. That if we don't recognize God at the center of all we do, then it is meaningless. If the Lord is not building the house, the laborer is building in vain. If God is not watching over the city, the watchman stands guard in vain. If the Lord is not watching over our family, we're growing our family in, in vain. If the Lord is not watching over our marriage, we're building our marriage in vain. 
if the Lord is not watching over our vocation, our work, our calling, if the Lord is not watching all of our life, the thing that we're building is worthless, meaningless. This is what Solomon is saying to these pilgrims. So winning at work starts with this mindset. God is in charge. I'm not in charge. I'm not in charge of my own work, my own family, my own marriage, my own life. God is in charge. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builder labors in vain. So winning at work means God is in charge. That's the first advice he gives. And the second part, he gives some advice about winning at rest. Winning at rest. So we're either working or resting, it seems. So this seems to cover a lot of life. In vain, he says, you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, but he grants sleep to those he loves. God wants to give us rest. And then he gives us this interesting illustration. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Now, some Bible readers have interpreted the second half of Psalm 127 as being largely disconnected from the first half. Like the first paragraph talks about work and toil, and the second half talks about family. And they imagine that as these pilgrims were traveling to Jerusalem, they were maybe getting a homesick. They were re- at least nostalgic and reminiscing about what they left behind. So their family's back at home, they're thinking about, and they're thinking about what a blessing their home was, about how God has blessed them with family and with children. And so their insights shifted to this reminiscing, and they specifically landed on the blessing that came from having a large family. Because in this culture, it would have been a sign of God's favor if you had a bunch of kids. That was definitely part of God's blessing for, this, uh, for these people. And when some people look at the psalm this way, they actually use Psalm 127 as kind of a calling, maybe even a mandate to say, well, if we're followers of Christ, we should have big families, right? Blessed is the one with a quiver full of children. That's, I don't know what the actual number is for a quiver full, but if you've got lots of kids, you're blessed. And so a lot of people have kind of interpreted this passage that way. I find this interpretation a little bit of a stretch, and I I think there's something a lot more significant going on here, that actually part one and part two are, are connected very closely, and Solomon is trying to give us a clue as to just how completely God is in charge of everything, including our families. And when we recognize how much God is in charge, then... We can rest from our toil. We can find rest. Solomon says that winning at work avoids anxious toil, but it also avoids laziness. Now, you Bible recap readers have been reading in Proverbs, and you've maybe noticed a number of times Solomon uses one of my favorite words in the Bible. It's the word sluggard. Did you come across that? I think there's 14 verses in the book of Proverbs that use the word sluggard, like Proverbs 6.6, 6, go to the ant, you sluggard, and consider its ways and be wise. It's just, doesn't that grip you? Proverbs 6.13, how long will you lie there, you sluggard? I think some parents could use that on their children in the morning. How long are you going to lie there, you sluggard? How long will you sleep? 
A sluggard buries his hand in the dish and he will not bring his hand back to his mouth. This is a picture of someone who's really lazy. They got a table full of food, they got the dish there with everything, they get their hand in there and pick up that fried chicken and they don't have enough energy to get it to their mouth. That's a sluggard. Being a sluggard is bad, a bad thing. Sluggards, Proverbs 24, sluggards do not plow in season so at harvest time they have nothing. They go hungry because they didn't do their work. Proverbs 21, 25, the craving of a sluggard will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. Solomon said, laziness is bad. Being a sluggard is bad. The sleep referred to in Psalm 127 is not laziness. He's not commending us to say, now, on the one hand, don't work yourself to death. On the other hand, don't be lazy. The kind of rest he's talking about here was for pilgrims who were entrenched in an idea about Sabbath. They had like a Sabbath rhythm that was part of their normal life. The life of the devout pilgrim was oriented around every week having time when nobody did any work. But it wasn't from laziness, it was from reverence. It was from respecting what God was doing that. In addition to this, these pilgrims also would have had a number of annual festivals that they celebrated so that in total there was a lot of days that these people did no work. I'm in a little study group with Alan and Steve and Gary. On Tuesday we were talking about this and did I get it right, Alan? You said that if we add up all of the Sabbaths plus all of the festivals from the Jewish calendar, it actually means that one out of every five days the devout Jewish person was doing nothing, right? No work, resting, celebrating. Is that right? About one out of every five days, they ceased, not from laziness, but to have a rhythm that actually recognized that their winning was not dependent on their effort. Their success was dependent on God. And on the days when they stopped everything, they ceased everything, God continued to work. God continued to provide for them. And there's a lot of examples throughout Scripture of this. I'll just read to you the um, one source for this rhythm from Deuteronomy chapter 5. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter or your male or female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your animals nor any foreigner residing in your town so that your male and female servants may also rest. So that is a Sabbath rhythm. On this day, nobody does any work. And yet... God continues to provide for them. The way that we win at rest is by reminding everyone on a regular basis that God is in charge and it's His work that's providing for us, not our own. That's part of the Sabbath rhythm. And the illustration that He uses to reinforce this in Psalm 127 is children. Because you may... Um, start out your family by saying, hey, let's have a whole bunch of kids. Let's have a quiver full of children. But who's really in control of that? Yeah, well, we have some control of that. But who's really in charge? 
God is in charge. Taking a weekly Sabbath with no work is the best way to remind us of that. It puts everything in perspective. It frees us from anxious toil. It also frees us from laziness. Last week we started um, a class on the Wisdom Pyramid. And um, if you have not yet joined in with that, I highly recommend it. It's looking at kind of where we turn in this day and age to get real wisdom from. And the class started by talking about technology, the influence of technology on us this day, and kind of the way we're connected all the time. So we have our smartphones and our tablets and all of our devices hooked up so that we're constantly getting the latest news, the latest updates, the latest tweets, the latest social media, the la- whatever is out there, we're constantly getting bombarded with this stuff. And um, we're connected every moment, and this connectedness has created an epidemic a, a problem at epidemic pr- proportion, it was created several problems, but one of the problems that's epidemic is this, sleeplessness. It's wearing us out to have such access, such connection all the time. We never take a break for it. We're constantly wired in, constantly hearing the dings and the notifications and the what's out, I got to check what's out there. And so it's not very conducive to restful slumber. People are tired and weary. It's wearing us out. Uh, One of the commentators I read for Psalm 127, verse 2, said this. The, The verse says, The Lord gives sleep to his beloved. And the commentator said this. That doesn't mean that God is like a Xanax that calms our nerves. One way the Lord gives his beloved sleep is by living in his creation as he has given it to us. One of the gifts of creation is the rhythm of time. Day and night, weekday and Sabbath, work and rest. In order to really recognize that God is in charge, we have to stop. We have to stop striving, stop toiling. We need to rest. Rest signifies that God is at work. One of my favorite images of the the way the Jewish people looked at time was where the day starts. You know where the day starts for us? when the alarm clock goes off. We're off and running. The day has just started. Do you know when the day starts for the Jewish community? At sunset, the day starts. And the first thing we do in each new day is go to sleep. And we spend half the day sleeping, and then we get up, and the day's half over. And we discover God's already been working. And we join God in that work. This is what Solomon's inviting us to consider as a way to win at rest. Recognize that God is in charge and this leads to a flourishing life. Which brings me to my third key to winning from Solomon. He gives us a little insight into winning at life. We can win at work, we can win at rest, we can win at life. So if we wanted to find a winner... Uh, If I ask someone to list a person that you think is a winner, you might be tempted to list Solomon as the winner. And you look at his life and go, well, there's some qualities that he looked like he was very successful. The wisest guy who ever lived, brilliant. One of the wealthiest guys who ever lived, so he he won that race, the wealth race. And, uh, you know, he's king, so that sounds like a winning thing to be king. This guy we should emulate, right? 
But if we look closer at him, we recognize that he didn't do so well in all of his races, that he actually lost out in a number of his races. In fact, one of the essays I read this week was about winners and losers, and the guy gave some interesting perspective on um, how we measure winners and losers and how we maybe need to be more uh, all-encompassing in how we measure this because we tend to look at one aspect of a person's life and say they won that aspect so they're a winner when in reality there's a bunch of other stuff they're terrible at and he gave some examples he said this being ruthlessly successful in business seems not generally to go hand in hand with any real ability to appreciate sunsets so are you going to measure your life as I won because I made a lot of money or are you going to measure success in your life as I appreciate beauty I appreciate the people around me. He says those who win at gaining fame tend to lose the race of empathy for the poor. So everybody knows me and pays attention to me. I'm famous, but I don't pay attention to anybody else. I lost that race. Being ridiculously wealthy doesn't often go hand in hand with overflowing generosity. I get a tight grip on my money and I don't want to let it go. So we have this tension. And then he goes on to say that nobody is a winner at everything, which is another way to say we're all losers at something. So you're all losers. Those we look at who look really good and successful from a distance and admire for their success, we often just don't know them well enough to know about all their failures. This helped me gain some perspective. So we might look at Solomon and go, hey, this guy was wildly successful. He's a winner. But then look at his life. We just read some of these details in the Bible recap. Solomon came to the throne in the middle of a family crisis. So the transition from David to Solomon, remember reading that? A mess. And actually, Solomon only actually gets to the throne because Bathsheba intervenes on his behalf. And so he gets to the throne. And the very first thing he does is he messes up his own family. He goes and he marries the Pharaoh's daughter so that he can make a treaty with the Egyptians and maintain the peace with them. And so he does something expressly forbidden. And then this becomes a pattern for him and we see that as his wealth accumulates more and more, his wives multiply, so he's got more and more wives. And then... The, the pagan altars multiply because these wives insist that he build the altar that they want to worship. And so by the time Solomon is leading the country, he's got all this wealth and all these wives and there's all these pagan altars. He's explicitly done what he had been forbidden to do, what all of God's people were forbidden to do. And so Solomon becomes a loser. This is actually his downfall, what brings him down in the end. The wisest guy in history was not wise about his own family, his own relationships. So what are we supposed to do if we all have the potential of being losers in life because of our brokenness? Well, um, Solomon did figure it out finally. This is what he wrote at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. He says, Now that all has been heard, here's the conclusion to the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. 
For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. He says, God is in charge. So respect God, keep him center. Do what he says, obey his commands, follow him closely. This is the key to winning at life. So I think winning involves a lot of different things, but it at least involves this. It involves keeping God at the middle so that whatever happens, we recognize it comes as a gift from his hand. This allows us to also win at rest. So we don't have to constantly strive and toil. We can rest and get a rhythm going for that, which also then allows us to win at work so that when we do work, we know that our work isn't this vain, striving, toiling drudgery. It's simply joining God in the process of what God is already doing, and that sounds like winning to me. I have a couple more thoughts about this, but I'll invite the worship team to come on up as we get ready to uh, do a little prayer of response. A couple questions for you to think about for next steps. As you're sitting there right now, do you feel like a winner or a loser? How do you feel? That's great. <laughs> if you're feeling like a winner, you're probably not as big a success as you think you are. And if you're feeling like a loser, you're probably not as big a failure as you think you are because we're all winners and we're all losers. We all do some things better and some things a lot worse. God is in charge of it all. If we want to win in life, we learn to recognize this. No matter where we're at, no matter how good we might feel about our position at the moment, God is in charge. He's still in charge. He never stops being in charge. And so this allows us to surrender. This allows us some freedom. So enjoy that freedom, the freedom to trust God in every situation. And then this also, I think, starts to impact and affect our attitudes. And I love the way Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in Matthew chapter 6. This sounds like the attitude of someone who has surrendered their life to God, who has said, I trust God to be in charge of all things. Matthew 6, 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. If God is really in charge of all things, do not worry about your life. Don't worry about what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? If God is in charge of everything, I don't have to worry. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worry of its own. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And that sounds a lot like Solomon. The conclusion of the matter, uh, fear God and keep his commandments. Seek God first. 
Trust God to provide for you. So I want you to think about that while we do this prayer time. And I'm also thinking about a, a posture if you're willing to try this during the song. And that would be the posture of surrender. There's a line in here about lifting our hands up. I'm, I think about lifting my hands up with my palms open. Because when my palms are open, that, um, that means I'm not striving, I'm not grabbing, I'm not worrying. I'm not trying to hold on to the things that I have. I'm saying, God, it's yours. God, you're in control. God, I surrender this to you. God, I'm free to let go of this stuff. So as we sing this song, uh, if you are willing to lay your hands open on your laps or lift your hands up open, whatever you want to do, and think about where God is calling you to freedom, to surrender this stuff that you're trying to control. So let's do that together as we sing. God, as we come before you, we come and we thank you for watching over our lives, for being in control of our lives. And God, we thank you for the freedom to let go of those things that would hold us down, those things that we uh, cling to, those things that we strive after, those things that we look to to give us value. And we ask, God, that you would help us to keep you at the center. God, we ask for the gift of a rhythm of work and, and rest that allows us to recognize you're always at work, that you're always providing, you're always loving, always caring for us. And because we know that is true, we know that you will bless the road that we're on. Lord God, I give you thanks for the invitation to be free from worry. We have been in a season that has been a lot of anxiety. It seems like we've been given so many reasons to worry, so many reasons to be afraid, to, to be anxious. And God, I surrender that up to you. I thank you, God, that we can let go of all those things that would weigh us down, that would burden us, that would cause us these anxious thoughts, these anxious feelings, that we, we trust you, God. We trust you to take care of them. We trust you to take care of us. We trust you to walk with us everywhere we go and to provide for us. We trust you, God, to bless the road.
give you thanks for the freedom to be grateful people. We thank you for the freedom that we have to give you thanks because we recognize that every good gift comes from your hand. We recognize that we are blessed people. We recognize that we have been given so much. You've given us an abundant, an abundant life. And so God, we give you thanks. Thank you for freeing us from striving, freeing us freeing us from selfish effort, from self-centeredness, freeing us to trust you for every good thing that we have and every good thing that will come to us. Thank you, God. We love you. We worship you. We adore you. We honor you. We thank you. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for watching. We pray you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to support the ministry of Cedar Hills, please visit our website, www.cedarhillscr.org.